So welcome back to episode, I think, eight of the Fairly Lame Podcast. My name is Dom. As always, each week on this podcast, covering about four or five feel-good conservation stories, all feel-good, keeping the hope alive. And today we have some pretty interesting ones, including one of my favorite all-time stories. And just a bit of a disclaimer, if I don't sound, uh, I guess, as normal or don't have... I'm not bringing as much NO, the, uh, the good old energy, as normal. Not feeling 100%, but we'll keep fighting the good fight um, and I mean, it's hard not to feel good when you're talking about some of these stories, starting with one of my favorite stories of all time, the Middle Island Penguin Dogs. If you follow on Instagram and TikTok at Fairly Lame, you would have seen a bit of a breakdown or an overview of this project um, with some video that I hadn't seen before, some really good stock footage that those guys had. Incredible. We'll touch on that first up. Then we have a couple uh, which are trying to go carbon neutral after almost losing their house in the 2019 bushfires just uh, just uh, outside of Canberra. Then we have a cheater reintroduction into India. Didn't have a clue that there were cheaters there, but apparently uh, there were. And then a global tax is proposed um, for climate change-related loss and damages to help poorer countries overcome these impacts, which a lot of them are already seeing, like uh, Fiji. Um, so there's a few articles about that. I'm sure you can understand that the wealthier countries aren't all that interested in another tax, but I think we could get there soon enough. Then finally, we have Australia committing to reversing biodiversity loss. This is a few years, uh, I guess, uh, overdue, overdue. Uh, it was, I think this first thing was chucked up in 2017, 2018 and old, uh, Scotty didn't want a bar of it. Um, but Hey, here we are. It's taken a few years, but we're finally there. We're finally on track. Um, and you also comment down below your favorite feel-good story of today. And also, I am trying to find more international use. I have about like 29 websites that I use to get these uh, stories from and the ones that we post on TikTok, post four videos a day on TikTok and to the top news stories on Instagram, a couple pictures, normally around four, and then also a couple reels uh, et al., um, but yeah, so comment down below what other good websites there are, because especially for the US, that that's not that sends you some dark places. Reading about conservation over there, I think I'm on like Fox News was one of the ones I was looking at, and that's depressing. It's just hiker died, body 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 fire flood, um, don't have water, and it's just like there has to be some good news going on. People just don't want to. Uh, I don't know why they don't want to talk about it. Maybe other things get some more views um but yeah let me know where we can find some new stories if you come across anything cool um so grateful and i think i've plugged tiktok and instagram enough so we can get into our very first story so if you've seen uh one of australia's all-time great movies oddball uh we'll pull it up in case you need some uh prompting oddballs <laughs> just don't know what that's gonna take me to uh, um this one so this is uh, Oddball. So these are Marama dogs, and they help protect the uh, mighty little penguins out in uh, out off the coast of uh, Warrnambool. We might, might look. We'll bring up a map too. Uh, Warrnambool. Oh beauty. Oh no, I don't want to keep going. Of oh, actually, let's just do this. Grateful. Uh, images, maps. Okay, so this is where we're talking about. So this is Warrnambool, Melbourne's down, oh, up there. And so Middle Island, 
is this thing. Uh, so it's not very big, and it's pretty close to the shore, um, and that is a key factor, which we'll touch on um, when we get into the article. So, um, a local chicken farmer, Swampy Marsh, suggested Marama guardian dogs could be used to protect the penguins. Swampy had successfully used Maramas to protect his free-range chickens. In World First, Marama dogs were trained and placed on Middle Island to protect the penguins from foxes during the breeding season. The project has been a huge success using guardian dogs for conservation and raising community sport and awareness uh, of the environment. Middle Island has been closed to the public since 2006 to protect the penguin burrows from human trampling. Um, and the closure of the island has contributed to an increase in penguin colony size. And apparently each year, if you want to meet the legends uh, in the flesh or in the fur, rather, you can meet the uh, guardian dogs with the uh, Meet the Marama tool and experience the project firsthand. Our Marama guardian dogs spend time on Middle Island during the penguin breeding season, and our Marama ambassador dogs spend time at Flagstaff Hill Maritime Village, interacting with visitors and helping educate people about environmental conservation. Um, and I just love how they have to have a note saying, <laughs> Marama dogs are suited as guardian dogs in rural and large block locations. Like all purchases of dogs, you should do your research uh, into a dog that suits your lifestyle. And location so i have i've been looking at this project for a while i first learned about it in undergrad when i was studying environmental science uh wildlife and conservation biology at the fabulous deakin university out in the burwood the burwood in victoria um and i think they're uh, affiliated with deakin too so um what's this story i think so this one retired i don't know if this is the one that oddball was based on it was. Oh, the Marama sheepdog was. Okay. Maybe it's not this one. Um, so, for a bit of backstory. Um, Middle Island, a beautiful, rugged, and windswept outcrop off the coast of southern Victoria is home to a colony of the world's smallest penguins. Originally known as fairy penguins, before some pen pusher deemed that to be politically incorrect. Uh... Okay, um, Okay. so we went to a point where we had around 800 penguins down to where we could only find uh, four. Uh, in our biggest bird uh, incident, uh, 360 were taken overnight from um, foxes. Um, and so it looks like the foxes would just go around um, doing harm without actually eating anything. Um, and so the pop that particular incident was in 2005, but the problem had been building up for a few years. Middle Island, which is uninhabited by humans, is separated from the mainland by a stretch of water measuring no more than 20 or 30 metres. At low tide, and when the sand builds up in the narrow channel, foxes can cross from the mainland, barely getting their paws wet. Um... The, the problem first became apparent in the year 2000 when the sea's natural current led to increased uh, sand buildup. Over time, the fox population grew as it became clear they had an easy source of food. The fairy penguins uh, faced being wiped out on Middle Island until uh, Old Swampy that we learnt about uh, called on the dogs. So the dog, the first of several to be used on Middle Island, which was called the Great Oddball, um made quite an impact. We immediately saw a change in the pattern of foxes. Leading up to when the dog went on the island, every morning would find fox prints on the beach. Putting a dog on the island changed the hierarchy. 
The foxes can hear the dogs barking. They can smell them, so they go somewhere else. Amazingly, since Oddball and his four-legged successes were introduced 10 years ago, there has not been a single penguin killed by a fox on Middle Island. And I think this article is out of date. Yeah, so this was in 2015. And I don't want to take the gleam off this uh, story. Um, so in 2017, there was a bit of an incident where some, the, apparently it was really rough weather, so the dogs weren't allowed to be out on the island. The dogs do have shelter from the sun and whatnot, but it's nothing all that robust, especially in pretty shit weather. So they had to take the dogs off the island, and then once there was no dogs, the foxes came back. It sounded like pretty soon after, and um, I think took a third of the population, if I'm correct. Um, and I think that was the first incident of foxes getting back over. Um, and also, I couldn't find this for the life of me, but I heard that one of the, or a couple of these guardian dogs, there's been a couple, in, <laughs> I don't know, yeah we'll, yeah, we'll touch on it, it's all part of the story. So, apparently one guardian dog accidentally killed a penguin, a baby penguin, but like, during the, I guess the evidence, it was clear that the dog was just trying to play with the penguin, um, and accidentally was a bit too rough, and, um, yeah, that happened. But apparently these dogs are so good at sniffing out foxes and chasing them away, a couple of them were actually found kilometres back on shore as they swam off the island and chased foxes away. Again, I couldn't find that for the life of me. I could find it a couple months ago when I first made my first video um, on the project, but now I don't know where it's gone. So I don't know if they've done the old uh, cover-up, if that's not good. Um, and the same thing about the, the penguin uh, accidentally dying. I couldn't find anything about that either. Um, but hey, there you go. Is there anything else we need to add to this story? Um, oh, okay, so this is the, um, so the incident in 2017, uh, almost the entire colony were wiped out by foxes while the dogs were away from the island due to bad weather. Despite one especially cunning fox causing trouble on the island this year, the population has begun recovering. So, uh, over on Instagram, again, forgot to mention this. On Instagram, we've got a screen capture of the articles. So sometimes there's pictures, and I'm not the best. Oh, no, I can, I can paint a pretty good picture, but it's not all that uh, accurate, and a lot of the time it doesn't mean much. Um, but, hey, if you think like me, it might help. But over on Instagram, we can see some little huts that they've made to protect their burrows. Um so, Marimers work in pairs on the island so the dogs are not lonely, but working intensely together has its challenges. Middle Island Project Officer has worked with Tula and Udi since they arrived uh, in Warrnambool. They're sisters from the same litter. We learned very quickly we'll never do that again. They're best mates, they get on great with each other, but every now and then they have that blue just like sisters. Despite some sibling rival rivalry, uh, Tula guarded her penguin colony ferociously, and as the, as the island's lead guardian, she was the dog who would bark first. Her handlers uh, know her as a loyal girl and the smartest, not smartest, smallest marama in the group. Tuller's a very sweet dog, and you can see her uh, looking lovingly into your eyes, and Tuller has now retired. After years on the program, Tuller will, be, will celebrate her retirement with a sentimental farewell surrounded by those who worked with her. We're going to have a special cake for her. We'll send her off in style. I'm not 100% sure which cake I'm going to make just yet. It'll probably be something... It'll be. <laughs> it'll probably be some form of meatloaf with either peanut butter frosting 
or a mashed potato frosting. Live in the dream. Tala has a bloody good life. So there you go. Again, if you haven't watched the video or if you haven't watched the movie, go check out Oddball. Do yourself a favor. Um, absolute peak of Australian cinema. So next, these, these are stories that I love talking about. People taking uh, thoughts and putting it into actions. Last week, we had a look at the conversation, uh, not conversationist, conservationist, uh, John Francis, I believe his name was, who didn't talk for 17 years after realizing he was doing too much arguing with people um, who didn't, uh, oh no, arguing with people who attacked his choices uh, to reduce his impact on the environment. But anyway, so this article is on the ABC News. All links are down in the description below, both on Insta- uh, on YouTube and Spotify, as well as timestamps for all of these articles. So, after bushfires tore through this couple's home, they pledged to aim for a zero-carbon lifestyle. I-, I didn't think their house was actually impacted, but there you go. After... Oh, yeah. Nah. Um... After bushfires crept dangerously close to their Wamboyne property in 2020, Sid Crawford and Camille Goodman promised uh, to change the way they lived. So, a bit of clickbait, but that's all right. Uh, confronted by the effects of uh, climate change, they decided to radically reduce their carbon footprint. We sort of felt a bit hopeless. We knew the problem was climate change, and we thought, well, what practical things can we do to take control? Love this. Who said this? Miss, Mr. Crawford? Fuck you, legend. Dr. Goodford said trying to calculate an appropriate amount of emissions they should be producing actually led to them to try a zero-carbon lifestyle. The more we looked into it, uh, we realized there's no proper amount. Uh, We just thought we have to shoot for zero, um, like as close to zero as possible. They installed solar panels at their property and now essentially live off the grid with help from an unusual source, recycled laptop batteries. Um, so this, honestly, this half looks like a bomb, but play on. I bought, uh, old laptop batteries by the kilo. Uh, then it was a case of disassembling them all, testing the batteries and eliminating the bad cells. Laptop batteries have maybe six cells in them. You might have one failed cell, but the rest will be good or sometimes they're all good. He said, Mr. Crawford said he used 800 laptop batteries to act as one large battery unit for a rooftop solar system. Uh, it's basically the same as three Tesla power walls. How, how, they're like 20K? Let's see. Um, oh, the Tesla power wall costs $11,500. Not quite 20K, but hey. And some more, some more. Where are we? Um, it's definitely not the easiest way to do it, but it's the cheapest way to do it. The couple record their personal carbon emissions each year, but Mr. Crawford said the biggest change to his carbon footprint had come from swapping to electric vehicles. I've always been environmentally conscious, uh, but it never entered my head that there was a problem doing long car trips at all. So in this picture, they've got an MG, clearly electric, but it looks like they've converted a la- uh, Range Rover, baby. With I don't know if that's solar panels on the roof. It kind of looks like it is. Uh, it looks like an old blowy uh, army truck. So Mr. Crawford said his carbon emissions in 2019 were just over 10 tonnes, with three quarters of that from his vehicle. The next year, I'd got it down to 4.78 tonnes and reduced the vehicle emissions down to 1.8. This year, I've got it down to 2.6 overall um, and vehicle only 0.85. What's the average emissions? 
per person in Australia. Uh, average carbon emissions. Uh, yeah. Because that must be hard to calculate. I'm guessing you're doing it based on electricity usage and then food, if you consider what food you're eating, um, and then petrol. I'm assuming you'd just do it based off litres. There's so much to keep track of. I wonder how they do it. Um, Australia has an average per capita footprint of 17 tonnes. Oh, funny. <laughs> More than the US of 16.2 and Canada of 15.6. Um, this is more than three times higher than the global average, which in seven in 2017 was 4.8 tons per person. Um, and I think I think it is pretty common knowledge that Australia has the most per capita emissions of anywhere in the developed world, but uh, people don't want to uh, acknowledge that. But anyway, so he was still well below the average for Australia two times over uh, the average for the world. Um, and so they said they've done all the easy bits. Trying to go carbon zero has created some challenges for the couple, especially as they get closer to their goal. While they managed to reduce their emissions significantly over the past year, they said that now they had done the basic things, uh, it was increasingly challenging to reduce their emissions further. Because it's hard, we've done all the easy bits. We've done the car, we're on solar, all our appliances are electric, we don't fly anymore, we've cut down lamb, beef, and dairy. Uh, she also started a job in Wollongong, a few hours' drive from Wamboyne, which meant the couple had to, t had to quickly upgrade their newly purchased electric vehicles for one with the range to travel longer distances. Uh, she said that overall, the making... Making the costly changes in the short term had improved their lives longer term. None of this has made our quality of life worse. We wouldn't say it's definitely improved it. Oh no, we would say, we would say it's definitely improved it. Bloody hell. Um, I wonder if that's just like a conscience, conscience thing, you know, feeling good about yourself, um, feel like you're making a difference, feel empowered. Um, maybe that's a part of it, but hey, all power to you. When asked if she had any tips for others hoping to cut their emissions, Dr. Goodman uh, said the most important thing was to simply aim for what was manageable. We're doing everything we can, and what everyone can do is different. Just do what you can. Couldn't have said it any better myself, Dr. Goodman, doing the Lord's work, um, living out in the country too. That must be that must be challenging. I wonder if they work from home because I think Wamboyne's it's uh near the beautiful, bloody beautiful nation's capital, um, and I think they're both. I'm pretty sure. Did it say that they're both researchers? Um, no. But I'm pretty sure they... Well, I mean, one's a doctor. Or are they both doctors? They might... Oh, no. One's a doctor. Yeah, one's a doctor. Um, so, Wamboyne. Where's the great Wamboyne? Yeah, okay. So, I didn't know there were fires that close, actually. I thought... Oh, actually, no, there was. There was fires. Um... Behind the great Fairbairn Golf Course. One of the great golf courses in uh, all of Australia, by far. There's this one hole. Going on another tangent here, and I doubt many people play golf, but hey. Or know what the fuck I'm talking about. Know what Fairbairn Golf Course is. <coughs> I'm getting too excited, man. It's bringing, it's bringing a... Uh, what do they say? What do they say when you're in love? You got a lump in your throat? Um, this, this hole here, I think that's hole three. That, that is hell. Every time, this is like a firing range for ADFA. Every time, balls out to the right, deadly slice. 
Um, anyway, back to conservation news, and we are coming to you with the cheetah uh, reintroduction. Cheetahs imported from Namibia to India left to fend for themselves, a project decades in the making. Hopefully the old uh, voice stays up. We've got another potty after this. Um, so, seven decades after cheetahs died out in India, a new experiment in ecological st stabilisation has brought them back. I didn't know there were, in, there are, um, what do you call them, cheetahs in India. The big cats from, or eight big cats from Namibia made the long trek in a chartered cargo flight to the northern Indian city of Gwalior, Gwalior um, part of an ambitious and hotly contested plan to reintroduce cheetahs to the South Asian country. They were uh, then moved to their new home, a sprawling national park in the heart of India, where scientists hope the world's fastest land animal will roam again. Um, Indian Prime Minister released the cats into their enclosure uh, on Saturday morning. The cats emerged from their cage tentatively at first while continuously scanning their new uh, surroundings. Um, so the newly introduced African cheetah are genetically different, though may adapt well to India's grassland. So the Asian... Asiatic, 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 Asia, with tick on the end, a, a, yeah, <laughs> anyway, those types of cheetahs have been extinct uh, in India since 1952, following excessive hunting and habitat loss, um, so yeah, sounds like these are a different species of cheetah, I wonder if the Asiatic, how do you say that, I mean, you don't come to this podcast, okay, wait, will this pick it up? Asiatic. 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 Okay, Google. Thank you. Grateful. Um, the big cats will be occasionally monitored, but otherwise left to adapt on their own. The cheetah will run again. Grasslands will be restored. Biodiversity will increase, and ecotourism will get a boost, Mr. Modi said, who is the Indian uh, Prime Minister. Cheetahs were once widespread in India and then became extinct in 1952 from hunting and habitat loss. They remain the first and only predator to die out since the country's independence in 1947. India hopes importing African cheetahs will aid the, uh, efforts to conserve the country's threatened and largely neglected grasslands. There are less than, I didn't know this, there are less than 7,000 adult cheetahs left globally and they now inhibit less than 9% of their original rage um, and their habitat is shrinking due to increasing human population and climate change. Um, and human population and climate change is a huge threat to India's grasslands and forests um, and could offer appropriate homes for the big cat. Uh, that was weird. To save cheetahs from extinction, we need to create permanent places for them on earth uh, cheetah populations in most countries are declining an exception to this is south africa where the big cats have run out of space experts hope that indian forests could offer these cats space to thrive so and then i think you get not murky but there's a couple interesting points later in this uh article um yeah so there could be cascading and unintended consequences when a new animal is brought into the mix for example a tiger population boom in india has led to more conflict with people sharing the same space with cheetahs there are questions about how their presence would affect other carnivores like striped hyenas or even prey like birds the question the question remains how well uh, it's done, he said. The initial eight cheetahs from Namibia will be quarantined at a facility to make sure they're not carrying pests. 
Um, the enclosures contain natural prey, such as spotted deer and antelope, which scientists hope they'll learn to hunt uh, and are designed to prevent other predators like bears or leopards from getting in. Um... The cheetahs will be fitted with tracking collars and released into the national park in about two months. Their movements will be tracked routinely, but for the most part, they'll be on their own. The reserve is big enough to hold 21 cheetahs, and if they were to establish territories and breed, they could spread to other interconnected grasslands and forests that can house another dozen cheetahs, according to scientists. There's only one village with a few hundred families still residing on the fringes of the park. So this is where it starts to get a bit strange. Indian officials said that'd be moved soon and any livestock loss due to cheetahs will be compensated. So I don't, surely you can't just force families out of their village. And well, I mean like surely, surely they would have to have some form of consultation if you're releasing cheetahs. But then if they're in a fenced enclosure, Surely you don't have issues. Like if bears can't get in, surely a cheetah can't get out unless they're going to have those one-way gates, um, which I think exist in some sanctuaries here in Australia. They've got these one-way gates. So once the population is increasing and animals want to start making their own territories, they can get out of the sanctuary. They might not survive because it's not predator-proof out there and foxes are there, but it allows them to start, you know, start, you know, crossing the boundary, teasing Teasing the line. Um, but that's strange. But I don't know. You'd think if there's already bears and jaguars, you'd expect there'd be quite a lot of overlap. Or not jaguars, leopards. Apparently, you'd expect there'd be a lot of overlap between leopards and cheetahs. I mean, just from my... Maybe they live in different habitats. I don't know. I'm not quite across the uh, leopard ecology. Let's see. Leopard uh, habitat, India. Maybe leopards live in, like, forests. Um... Uh, Indian leopard. Uh, I don't know why that's... A national consensus of leopards around tiger habitats. Okay. Uh, just tell me where... Okay, so of all types of forests. Okay, so so the leopards will be in the forests and the cheetahs will be in the grasslands. But yeah, you would expect one species might not be able to compete as well and then... Or even individuals within the same species. Like if the cheetah population's gone really well... Uh, you'd expect some individuals won't be able to compete with uh, the more dominant ones and then they'll be forced out to the edges of this national park. And if you've got hundreds of families, like hundreds of families, not hundreds of people, hundreds of families, um, that could be a really dangerous time. And then that could impact public perception of these animals. So if you've got cheetahs killing people or like at least getting into confrontations with them, there's going to be that fear and people are going to start like, doing some things that maybe aren't the best to do to animals um, to try to protect themselves and protect their villages, um, which I think you've seen, I think it's it's either with tigers in Malaysia. I think it is Malaysia. Um, the tiger population is in Malaysia. It's only a few hundred, but it's starting to peak just because these interactions with humans are starting to get more and more common. And as they do get more common, people are starting to change their perceptions on tigers, a lot more aggressive um, and then that can hurt further conservation initiatives. But, I mean, look, hopefully this all goes smoothly, and by the time the government relocate hundreds of families, um, the cheetah is off and running, no pun intended, and, yeah, all going well. Um, 
Yeah, again, did not know there were cheaters in India. Um, I wonder how much of this is for tourism. I did. Yeah, I wonder if this is a bit of a tourism play, like if they're going to do like uh, safaris in uh, Indian grasslands now. But I did get a comment on, tw- uh, not Twitter, uh, TikTok, plug, shout out, at Philly Lane. And someone was saying that they tried to do this with some type of tiger. I don't know if you can hear that. That is my uh, washing machine going, which likes to sing. Um, let's see. So I've read that it was first planned to uh, introduce more Asian lions, but they scratched that, and because of tourism, they wanted to have cheetahs instead. I don't know. I would fact check that. This is just from a bloke named Tim on TikTok with a black profile picture. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, oh, did he reply? Um, and because they chose to take African cheetahs, India has received a lot of criticism. That's interesting. Again, look, do your own research. I don't know how much uh, truth that is. Maybe maybe Tim's the fucking president of the uh, Cheetah Conservation Club. Who knows? Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Um, but yeah, I guess it's kind of like what we are talking about the last couple weeks about uh, Tasmanian Degel, D- Degels? Devils, not Degels, being reintroduced potentially into Wilson's Promontory National Park here in Victoria. Apparently, it's already possible like it it could happen it could have happened for a few years but the tasmanian government will never let it happen because that could be a massive loss for their tourism um so i'm surprised i think this would fall into the same category maybe there was some more money involved maybe because it's different countries you can kind of do what you want um whereas if you're in the same country you're looking out for everyone's best interests and tassie doesn't have that much to offer nah that's disrespectful tassie's good tassie's good the spirit of tassie though that is no good that boat floating death trap I've only taken it once, so we took it there because uh, we wanted to take the car when I was only 19, so I couldn't hire a car over in Tassie, so we took the car on, it was a few hundred bucks, it was, it's, oh mate, it's expensive, um, especially when flights are only like 100, 150 bucks from Melbourne, something like that, take the flight over, middle in the day, middle of the day, and we'll skip some of the details because I don't know what you guys are doing, if you're having a nice, uh, if you're having a nice tofu chili scramble, a bit of tss, or uh, a nice cold brew, maybe, eating and drinking. You don't want to hear some of these details, so I'll skip over them. But it was horrible. The boat was rocking side to side. No one could walk over. Head down for eight and a half hours, because if you look up, mm-mm, mm-mm, no good. Water, there was pictures. Water coming over the roof of this boat. This massive ferry had waves crashing over it. Nah. Oh, man, that was my first experience. But on the way back, got the uh, night trip. Smooth as. Get a four-person cabin, two of you. Oh, living the dream. Have a shower, silent, feel like you're in a rocking chair. So look, maybe it's just the timing. Anyway, don't know how we got onto the spirit of Tasmania from uh, Cheetah reintroduction. But hey, now we've got a few stories on this. There's been a few developments this week. I don't know how long this has been going on for, but uh, this is the calls for a global tax to pay for climate-led damage uh, and loss. So... Pretty much a lot of vulnerable countries, I don't know the numbers, but places like Fiji, especially a lot around Australia, are calling out for Australia to do a lot more um, in regards to climate action because they're already seeing firsthand the impacts. They're living on little islands which are literally shrinking by the day, um, especially the Marshall Islands and Tuvalu. Uh, So we'll touch on that a bit later on. But the good news aspect of this is that Hopefully this goes ahead. Hopefully countries this could be this could be the first 
big step. I don't want to say first big step, but this could be a massive advancement in terms of countries actually working together to help people out um, suffering from these damages. Because who knows? Maybe there's going to be a day where Australia, like we've already seen our floods in Australia. It might not happen just because um, we're, we're not all pretty wealthy, but it's a pretty wealthy country, pretty well off, comfortable. Um, maybe we won't need assistance, but then again, maybe there'll be a massive disaster and we will need some help and uh, initiatives like this global tax will help pay for some of that damages. Um, so, the world's most vulnerable countries are preparing to take on the richest economies with a demand for urgent finance, potentially including new taxes on fossil fuels or flying uh, for the irrecoverable losses they are suffering from the climate crisis. Leaked documents shown. So there's a bit of drama here, a bit of tea, a bit of uh, mystery. Extreme weather is already hitting many developing countries hard and forecast to wreak further c catastrophe. Uh, loss and damage, the issue of how, uh, of how to help poor nations suffering from the most extreme impacts of climate breakdown, uh, which countries cannot be protected against, is one of the most contentious problems in climate negotiations. So that was a long sentence. Uh, hopefully that made sense to you listening. Some of the world's most vulnerable countries have prepared a paper seen by The Guardian for discussion this week at the UN General Assembly. It shows that poor countries are preparing to ask for a climate-related and justice-based global tax as a way of funding payments for loss and damage suffered by the developing world. Um, and I don't know if developing world is the right title, given I'm pretty sure India and uh, China are still classed as developing countries, um, and they're some of the biggest polluters, which you would assume would be taxed. Uh, anyway, so the funds could be raised by global carbon tax, a tax on airline travel, and a, level, a levy on heavily polluting and carbon-intensive bunker fuels used by ships. Bunker fuels, haven't heard that before. Adding taxes to fossil fuel extraction or a tax on financial transactions. Financial transactions, bloody hell. We're going to have another GST. GST? Yeah, GST. Um, the discussion... Uh, the discussion paper notes advantages and drawbacks, which uh, for either of those, blah, 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 all options for funding loss and damage are likely to be difficult for rich countries uh, to agree to at the time of soaring fossil fuel costs, rising fuel prices, and a cost of living crisis around the world. Although countries agreed at the COP26, the United Nations Annual Climate Conference, uh, in Glasgow last year, there should be a framework for loss and damage, but there is no agreement on how it could be funded or who should contribute. And so, I think that was posted a few days ago. And then after this, also, shout out, say, not an ad again, but sh bloody should be an ad. They make, I'm pretty sure these sneakers in the top left are made from mango leather. How oh, good. So, the UN chief... Uh, backs this proposed tax on fossil fuel profits for climate change uh, damage. Um, so Antonio Guterres uh, told the General Assembly that polluters should pay for the impact of climate-related events. This question of who funds these uh, losses has long dogged international uh, negotiations. Poorer countries say the rich should pay because of their historic carbon emissions. But richer, <laughs> richer nations reject any calls for compensation. Arguing over this question 
um, or arguments rather, I'm losing it, I need another cold, I haven't had my cold brew today, that's why, forgive me, forgive me, I haven't had my cold brew, the reading's a bit off today, but hey, you don't come here to learn how to read or pronounce names, you come here for the feel-good stories, arguments over this, uh, <laughs> fuck, now I've thrown myself, arguments over this question are likely to dominate discussions at the forthcoming COP27 summit in Egypt. As world leaders gather for the UN General Assembly in New York this week, there's no shortage of critical issues on the agenda. Um, and then so, further, building off the back of this, Denmark, I think this was a few years, Denmark offers loss and damage funding to poorer countries for climate breakdown. So they're one of the first countries leading, I think the first country actually, leading the way. Denmark gets the ball rolling at UN ahead of protests as poor nations call for greater collective commitment. Youth groups in Africa are preparing to embark on a series of climate demonstrations on Friday to highlight the problem of loss and damage to poor countries blighted by climate breakdown, as only one rich country has so far stepped up with funding for the problem. Actions will take place in a few uh, African countries, with more to follow in other countries over the weekend. Denmark became the first central government of a developed country to propose funding devoted to loss and damage which refers to those ravages of climate related disasters which are so extreme that no protection against them is possible at the un general assembly uh, for which world leaders are converging on new york the danish government announced to philanthropists and poor countries that it would provide um 12 million pounds uh, specifically for loss and damage since then, Scotland has also offered funds for loss and damage, around £2 million, uh, and the government of Belgian region uh, of Wallonia uh, pledged £0.9 million towards administration. Denmark is the first, we already said that. Uh, the countries, the sums are tiny compared to the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of losses that countries are expected to experience, but the symbolism is important. At COP26, governments agreed to forge a framework to address loss and damage, far out, uh, but there was no agreement on a funding mechanism. Uh, what else do we have? There's still question marks over how the Danish finance would work, and some cam campaigners and experts are concerned that some of it appears earmarked for insurance schemes rather than representing direct aid. Um, Jamaica's happy to see a developed nation stepping up to the plate. No other countries have indicated they are likely to follow the Danish lead. G7 governments may be more inclined to provide finance to the Global Shield initiative, backed by Germany. What is this uh, Global Shield? Um, Global Shield against climate risks. So I think it's just a pool of money to protect countries. Um, yeah, so Global Shield is intended to provide funds for poor countries to gain resilience against climate, against the damages of extreme weather. So, I mean, not to go into it too much, it seems like, look, it's good to see one country stepping up, leading the way, hopefully other countries fall in line. I mean, unfortunately, I'd say it's probably going to be a while until Australia does something similar. Um... I mean, we, we have just seen some pretty... We have had a pretty rough time over here, given the latest floods. But hopefully soon enough, we will help commit... Help protect uh, some of these uh, local islands. Also, this is something I wanted to point out. This was very interesting. So, Tuvalu, Kiribati, and the Marshall Islands called for a global settlement 
that guarantees their nation states a permanent existence beyond the inhabitable lifetimes or uninhabitable lifetimes of their atolls. So if you don't know, I'm pretty sure Tuvalu is the fastest sinking. Tuvalu. Uh, so one day it will disappear. We won't get into it too much because this, okay, this might not be the most feel good. Uh, so 11 people, 11,000 people, not 11 people, 11,000 people live in Tuvalu and it's sinking uh, quite rapidly and they've had to do some pretty extreme um, seawalls to try to protect themselves. And so I wonder what this global settlement could look like. Like if it's going to be land somewhere, like Australia, if we give them some land, surely, surely give them some land um, that they can still exist as a country. Um, give them Melbourne. Give them, yeah, give them Melbourne. Give them, oh, no, give them Sydney. Sydney's... Or Perth? Maybe Perth, actually. Give them Perth. I don't know what side... Where is Tuvalu? Surely just take Perth. Tuvalu. They're the biggest polluters anyway in WA, in uh, Australia. So, hey, look. Maybe maybe I'm onto something. Uh, Tuvalu map. Maybe we help Tuvalu and we also cut our national emissions by heaps by just getting rid of... Maybe just all the WA. Okay, so they're in the wrong direction. Uh, Tuvalu is like... If you drew a line... So this is my picture painting skills. So if you drew a horizontal line through Papua New Guinea and a vertical line through New Zealand, where those intersect, you're at Tuvalu. I reckon that was actually pretty good. I should have made maps back in the day. Don't even need the stars, man. Just need me. Anyway... So you go. Hopefully, uh, again, hopefully Australia jumps on the back of this. Other countries start stepping up. Very interested to see what happens at COP27. I don't know when it is. I know it's this year, though. And I'm sure there will definitely be some news coming out of it. Um, so we will keep you guys posted. Make sure to like and subscribe to uh, keep up to date with that one. But our very last story for today. The Morrison government uh, refused to sign the leader's pledge for nature in 2020, but Anthony Albanese uh, signals environment is back as priority. Australia signs global nature pledge, committing to reverse biodiversity loss by 2030. All right, the beautiful is that a um black-tailed, yellow-tailed black cockatoo, something like that. Black-tailed yellow, yellow-tailed black cockatoo, I think. Anyway, uh, we're getting distracted. We're getting lost in the source. The Australian government has signed a global pledge endorsed by more than 90 countries committing them to reversing biodiversity loss than 20, uh, by 2030. Um, he said, uh, in a video message, he said Australia's approach to environmental challenges had changed and the government understood climate change and the global loss of biodiversity were dual crises. Thank God. Thank God we have some recognition. I was reading this book. Uh, actually, let's get it. One second. So, I bring to you uh, the Carbon Club. If you're a bit younger, uh, or you just want to remember the great times, the good old days with uh, <laughs> Tony Abbott and what was that bloke? Uh, Johnny Howard. The Carbon Club talks all about the issues those guys, uh, I guess all the barriers they put up to acting on climate change and the reason, potential reason, hypothetical uh, alleged reason why Australia is so behind. But yeah, highly recommend that book. Anyway, 
uh, great to see. Great to see Australia finally taking accountability. Great Albanese. What do they call him? Like Bozo Albanese or something? Love him. Uh, this highlights Australia's reinvigorated approach to protecting our environment and climate leadership and signals our solidarity with other world leaders in our commitment to taking strong action on the dual crises of biodiversity loss and climate change. Well, sure, mate, surely, if you're talking about climate leadership, surely jump on the back of that uh, tax. Get on that tax, commit some money, print some more, hand it out, help the world help the people of the world we're all we're all humans until we move to mars uh the leaders pledge for nature is the same document morrison government refused to sign in 2020 because it called for commitments that were inconsistent with australia's policies at the time um including greater ambition to reduce greenhouse gas emissions um so the pledge was developed by a few countries including the uk and uh eu uh, and a couple others, uh, I can't pronounce them all, so uh, et al, et al. Uh, countries that have endorsed the pledge have promised actions including stronger global effort to reduce deforestation, halting unsustainable fishing practices, eliminating environmentally harmful subsidies, um, and beginning the transition to sustainable food production systems and a circular economy during the next decade. The document promises action to reduce biodiversity loss and stop human uh, cause extinctions of other species. He noted that Australia he noted, sorry, Australia's important position as one of only a handful of mega diverse countries that comprised 10% of the Earth's surface, but were home to more than 70% of its species. Working together, we can better protect and conserve the world's land, seas and waterways and cultural heritage for future generations. Now, this is time to act. Oh, he's getting me a bit fired up. Good old uh, Albo. Um, we look forward to working with the government uh, to ensure this pledge translates into action that helps regenerate Australia uh, and supports our neighbours in the Asia-Pacific. There you go. That's a bit of mateship, a great Australian quality, bit of mateship. Help your neighbours out. Um, love that. I think the rest is... Oh, down here. So, at present, Australia is failing to meet its international obligations, she said. Uh, conservation efforts are hugely underfunded, amen, uh, and only 100 of Australia's more than 1,900 listed threatened species and communities are prioritised for recovery action. So, you go. Uh, hopefully, I think, I think it's Zoos Victoria... Uh, have yeah fighting extinction i think zoos victoria have committed to um fighting wildlife extinction They're, i think they've got like a 30 species priority list let's have a look um so there are 27 native species outlining projects they've got 27 priority species meet the native threatened species working to save from extinction let's have a look before we'll finish on a nice note talking about some I was going to say cuddly animals, but the first two that came up was the great alpine she-oak skink, which looks like a blue-tongued lizard. Uh, the ball-ball frog looks like a frog. Uh, Brush-tailed rock wallaby. Uh, Eastern barred bandicoot uh, looks like a bandicoot if someone sprayed white spray paint on its butt uh, across the back. Um, the giant burrowing frog. That looks like a chunky boy. The golden raid blue butterfly. So we have an invertebrate on this list. Might only be one. We'll see. The grassland earless dragon. Uh, the Guth Guthagus skink. Sure. 
the helmeted honey eater, the uh, national, not national, the state bird of Victoria, I believe. Uh, and then Key's matchstick grasshopper. I'm pretty sure we had these in Australia, uh, not, not in Australia, in Canberra. I don't know, they look familiar. But so, two inverts so far. Uh, large brown tree frog, Leadbeater's possum, lowland population. Once thought to be extinct, Leadbeater's possum was rediscovered in 1961. Um, Lord Howe Island stick insect, the Mallee emu wren, which doesn't look like an emu at all, but it looks sick. One of the fa one of the all-time great birds. Mountain pygmy... Me uh, <laughs> got too excited there. The, the little fella got me too excited. The mountain pygmy possum, uh, which is... I think the biggest impact to them is declines of the, the bogong moth. The northern crobbery frog up in Mount Kosciuszko, orange belly palette, the Plains Wanderer. We had a story about the Great Plains Wanderer. I should have included it in today's. Oh, next podcast. If you are, like and subscribe, Plains Wanderer uh, video. In next podcast, next week's podcast, next Monday, 3 p.m., uh, we'll talk about the Plains Wanderer. They're giving them solar backpacks to help track their location. Very fussy when it comes to habitat. Apparently, if it's too dry, there's not enough resources for them to make their nests. So they leave, they run away, no one knows where they go. But then if it's too wet, there's too many weeds, and they run away again. But no one knows where they go. So it's pretty hard to conserve something if you don't know where the hell it is. Um, so these trackers track their location for about two years, I think. Anyway, the New Holland mice. I've done some work with the uh, New Holland mice. I've dabbled back in Canberra. Don't know what that reserve call, uh, was called, but um, interesting. The Regent Honey Eater. Uh, Smoky Mouse, Southern Bentwing Bat. Love the bats. Spotted tree frog, southern crabberry frog, um, stuttering barred frog, swift parrot, and the great Tasmanian devil. So, yeah, we might actually do a bit of a video. We might. We might. We might include one of these uh, species. Maybe every day, every podcast, we'll go through one of these species that Zoos Victoria is trying to protect from extinction. But anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this video. Not sure how long it ended up being. Hopefully it sounded okay. As always, head over to TikTok and Instagram at FairlyLame underscore if you want more of my rough annoying, uh, annoying rough noggin, sorry. Um, but yeah, we'll see you guys next week, 3 p.m. Monday. Set your, uh, set, mate, put it on the calendar. Write it on the calendar with a big love heart. Just say FL inside the love heart, and then your missus will come up to you, or your partner, whatever, will come up to you and say, are you cheating on me? You say, no, I'm just in love with the Fairly Lame podcast. We'll see you guys next week.